So I'm going to be with you the next three or four months, uh, Lord willing. And what I wanted to do as we talked about this as a leadership team, as elders, uh, about what we want to do for Sunday school. Um, you know, we've had a few topical ones. I think it was church history. Uh, Ryan went through church history with you for I don't know how many months, two or three months. And then after that, there was uh, Bob going through missions, evangelism and missions. All right. And so we thought, hey, it'd be great to dive back into a book. And the timing lined up well for me because we just finished the book of Acts in our Sunday school. So I was looking for a new book to jump into. And we thought, hey, uh, let's, let's let, uh, they said, let's let the old youth pastor teach for a, for a few months. And uh, I decided, let's go through 1 Peter. So 1 Peter is where I want to spend our time over the next, again, three to four months. 1 Peter, and what I want to do today, I'm, I was thinking through a schedule. How do I want to go through 1 Peter over the next a couple months? What I want to do today, just for today, is kind of introduce you to the book. Okay, introduce you to the book of 1 Peter. It's not going to be very, uh, I don't know if you want to use this word, preachy, necessarily. I don't have a big uh, outline uh, or anything like that as far as a preaching outline. Uh, but what I hope we can do this morning is just get you oriented in the book of First Peter. You may feel like you know First Peter well. I don't know if you do, or maybe you don't. Maybe maybe you don't. Maybe you don't really know a whole lot about First Peter. My goal is to to get you there over the next three or four months. Um, so today, let me just let me just talk about where I want to go. Uh, I want to introduce you to this book. So we're going to look at who is the author. I, spoiler alert: It's Peter. But we're going to talk a little bit about him as well. Who is he writing to? So who is his audience? What kind of people are receiving this letter? What are some main themes in this book? We're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at uh, what is the overall purpose of this book. And then I have something else in mind if we have time uh, at the end. So, but that can, that can kind of, uh, you know, we don't have to do that. But I thought it'd be healthy to perhaps read First Peter together this morning if we have time, but we'll see. So here's kind of my, before we get into First Peter and before we get into this introduction, I want you to know beforehand sort of what my goals are for this class over the next two or three months, three or four months, five, six months, next year. No, probably going to be three or four months. Here are my goals. I've got really two. Goal number one is that you would have, in some sense, a head knowledge of the book of First Peter, all right? I want you to know First Peter well. I want you to be able to say what First Peter is about. And maybe by the end of today, you're gonna be able to do that. But I want you to have a really good grasp on what is in the book of First Peter, all right? Hopefully, through this, you'll have some favorite passages that arise from our teaching through, my teaching through First Peter. But by the end of the next few months, I want First Peter to be a well-known book for you so that, you know, five years from now, when someone comes up to you and says, hey, Grandpa, what's First Peter about? I hope that you can just say, hey, here's what it's about. All right. And you don't even have to look up the notes or anything. You'll, you'll have a really basic, high level knowledge of what First Peter is about. Um, and you'd be able to answer them somewhat confidently. Um, some of you are thinking, if I'm a grandfather five years from now, then we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, Vaps in the bag, yeah. Um, here's what I believe 
part of the preacher's job is, or the teacher, um, which that's me, part of my job is to help you understand any given book that we're going through. So if I'm up on Sunday morning and I'm going through 1 Corinthians 13 or 1 Thessalonians 5 or wherever I'm at, my goal, what I'm aiming at during that is partially, I want you to see what it's about. I want you to see uh, and, and really understand the flow of argument or the flow of the narrative or whatever we're in. I want you to be able to, to get your mind around what's happening in the passage and not 15 other places, but in that passage, okay? And that's what I want to do here. And the key to doing that is, is really bringing to light, and that's what we're going to do in First Peter, we're going to bring to light what the author is trying to communicate to that audience, okay? That audience, that's, it's often called authorial intent. That's kind of a hermeneutics word. Uh, it's authorial intent. What did that author, what does Peter want to convey to this particular audience? All right? And why does he say the things that he says? So if you, if you can't go through, if we're going through a book on Sunday mornings or any Bible study you're in, if, if you find yourself as the audience really lost that may be because the preacher or teacher hasn't done a good job of, of helping orient you in the book, all right? And so my goal, if, I, if I'm trying to, to, to name some goals here and say, here's what I want out of this, I want you to understand and track with me all the way through First uh, Peter and that, you know, if, if you're consistent in this and consistent in your attendance, you, my, my hope is that you'd walk away with a really good knowledge, a, a good head knowledge of of uh, this epistle. Okay, so that's half of my goal. The other half is practical knowledge. What I mean by that is I want there not to just be kind of a, a mental, okay, I, I know some of the verses in this, I know some of the contours of First Peter, but I also, I want you to, to, to take this with you when you go. I want you to take this into your heart and live with First Peter in your heart as you go about your, your, your day, your, your, your week. I want you to carry First Peter to your job or wherever you go. I want you to live like you know and, you, and, and you're sensitive to the words in First Peter. It's my goal. I want you to apply what we've seen. Uh, there are far too many churches. He, uh, I'm not necessarily saying here or any particular churches, but I've been in some where it just, you know, they, they've been taught doctrine and they have a good appreciation for, for doctrine and they know all these different points of doctrine. They know where they land on this argument over here and this argument over here. But you walk into their church and it's just stale, okay? It's just stale. It's as if it's, it's, it's only went to the head and it hasn't made its way to the heart yet. And so that's, that's what will turn a church stale is if you're, it's merely head knowledge and not... Um, about application. So my second goal is very, is, is very simple. I want you to practice what you learn. Um, listen, far too many people, and perhaps even people in this church, um, I'd say any given church, have the Bible in their head and not in their heart. So let's make sure our hearts are right as we approach the text of Scripture. I'll do my job as best as I can to to, to explain it, show you how that truth that Peter was communicating then can apply to your life right now, 
And um, by God's grace, we'll, we'll all grow from that. So, that's, uh, that's what I want to aim at. All right? So let's think about the book of 1 Peter. Again, let's, let's just dive into an introduction here. Some of this you may know, uh, especially the first uh, couple parts of these notes. You're probably going to know. But here's, here's who's writing the book. Here's the author of, of 1 Peter. Ready? Peter. Peter is the author of 1 Peter. Um, here are some various names. As you'll see, Peter, this is the Apostle Peter. Here are the various names um, given to to Peter. Simon was his original name. Prior to his being called to be an apostle, his name was Simon. And then Jesus, and you can see this in John chapter 1 when he's called, or probably other places. Um, Jesus says, I'm going to call you Simon Peter. All right, Simon hyphen Peter. So sometimes you'll see Simon before he was actually made a disciple, and then you'll see Simon Peter. Um, then you hear him talked about as Cephas. I put in parentheses there where that comes from. We know that Peter is Cephas and, and whatnot. Uh, Cephas is just the Aramaic translation of the word rock. Because remember, Peter means rock. You see that in the fourth point. Peter is the, is the Greek word for rock, Petros. Um, Aramaic, it's Cephas. Okay? So don't get confused. All the same person. Uh, you guys... Uh, probably knows some of this, but just to orient you about who we're talking about, it's the Apostle Peter, also called Simon Peter, also called Cephas. Uh, under bullet point B there, um, or letter B, one of the original 12 apostles, like I mentioned, and what I listed there for you are, are really three primary identifying marks of apostles. We've talked about this um, whenever I was going through 1 Corinthians 13, if you remember, I kind of gave you some, okay, here's how we know tongues is no longer extant in the church. It's no longer uh, being practiced in the church. And here's how we know, what was the other one? Um, tongues and then, uh, what was it? Prophecy, yes. Uh, tongues and prophecy. We kind of said, Here are, here's what biblical prophecy looks like. And we're not seeing that now. We're not seeing that carried on now. Well, similarly, Apostleship is the same way. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, uh, how do we know that apostles are not around anymore? Or how do we know someone is an apostle? Uh, a lot of people call themselves apostles. Um, a lot of different churches, a lot of charismatic churches. Uh, the pastor is really, uh, he's apostle, this, this, and this. Um, how do we know that the office of apostleship, uh, apostle, that, um, that that office has really went defunct. It's, it's no longer a, a biblical office being, being used right now. Well, there are really three, and maybe you could add more, but I would say there are three primary um, identifying marks, marks of any apostle. And Peter, by the way, I'm, I'm getting at this, he has exhibited all three of these marks. The first one is that he was personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. I put the first reference there. You don't have to turn there. Uh, but John chapter one shows that Peter was approached by Jesus Christ and personally appointed by him. All right? You say, well, what about the Apostle Paul? Well, Jesus Christ appeared to him, right? Personally appointed him. So I put at the bottom there why we say that that's a mark. By the way, um, 
you, you really, you can read that later if you want, but essentially it's just the pattern uh, and, and even Paul's understanding that I was appointed an apostle. I was an appointed messenger for Christ. And so you can look at those bullet points down there later if you want, but those are just some of the backings for where I, you know, here's why I came up with what I came up with on these three identifying marks. But first, they got to be personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, they need to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. If you read John chapter 20 and John chapter 21, that's exactly what happens with Peter. He has, he has seen Christ's ministry through. He has seen it from the beginning of those three years of ministry. He's seen it from the beginning all the way through his death, through his resurrection, and he has witnessed Christ post-resurrection. And I get this, again, you can look at the bullet point, you can search it up later. Acts chapter one, when they're looking to replace uh, Judas, remember that? One of the questions they ask is, hey, we need to, or one of the criteria they put out there is, hey, we need to find a man who has been with us all the way through um, Christ's ministry. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so you may look that up later if you want. But that is certainly true of the apostle Peter. That's part of what makes him an apostle. He was there and he was commissioned. And thirdly, uh, he was authenticated by signs of an apostle. I noted Acts chapter three there when uh, Simon performs some of these signs. Um, you see that in his life, but 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul's talking. He said, hey, the, the, the signs of a true apostle uh, were performed among you. Basically saying, hey, what it, par par partially how you know someone is an apostle, one of those foundational apostles, is that they were doing signs and wonders to attest to the message that they were preaching. All right? So we, we see that with Peter as well. So when you're talking about these offices, or the, this office of apostleship, um, you see three ident identifying marks. And by the way, none of these are true of anyone currently. All right? No, none of these are, are currently being done. Christ has no longer commissioned anyone. He is, um, people are not eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord anymore, you know, eye to eye. And um, you may think that people are doing signs, but often those are fake signs or they're not observable at all. These are not, there, there are no longer signs that were, uh, that, that accompany the apostles. So that, that's just a sidebar, but that's sort of how the, how the Bible thinks about apostles, all right? And Peter ticks all those boxes. So secondly, there's your, audio, or there's your author, um, the Apostle Peter. And then here's your audience. Go to that second um, Roman numeral there. Here's your audience. And then I'm getting this straight out of verse 1. I'll read it to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. So I broke this down into really two ways to identify the audience. Number one, these are, it's their physical status. These are perhaps churches in these regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, this is I don't know why you would want to know this, but I thought it was interesting. It's in modern-day north, northern Turkey, all right? That's kind of the area they're in, but 
here's something interesting about them. Um, they were mostly Gentile Christians. They were mostly people who were not Jewish in their ethnicity and not Jewish they didn't, in, in their religion. They were, did not practice Judaism either. Um, you, you read throughout this epistle uh, these words like, you know, you inherited these, these uh, you know, you inherited these vain ways from your forefathers. You, you see the Peter basically saying, hey, th- what you inherited, your forefathers, they, they had no idea what they were talking about, and uh, they were ignorant. And, I, and it's hard to imagine that Peter would be saying the same thing uh, about Jews. I mean, I, I would say, in some sense, most of the scholars these days, now this is sort of conjecture, but most of the scholars um, who talk about First Peter would say that, that Gentile Christians are the ones who are receiving this this epistle. And perhaps mixed in there are some Jews, but predominantly these, this is written to Gentile Christians, which is kind of, kind of uh, interesting because Peter was the apostle to the Jews, right? Paul was to the Gentiles. Peter was primarily um, to be working with Jewish people. But that does not, let me just say, it doesn't preclude that Peter couldn't have also um, had some affiliations with Gentile churches um, it's further interesting because in First Peter, what you find is that there are more Old Testament allusions per, let's say, per square inch proportionally to the size of the book than in any other book in the New Testament. So you may have Acts that has a lot more kind of, let's say, verses about the Old Testament. But in First Peter, given its size, Proportionally, there is more Old Testament references than in any other New Testament book. Now, if he's writing to Gentile Christians, people who probably didn't know the Old Testament scriptures as well, that's kind of funny to think about. It's kind of like, why, why are you adding so much Old? And it's actually confused a lot of scholars on this. They're like, well, if he's, this doesn't seem to line up. And the only way I really think about it is if I'm sharing, I mean, we as Gentiles, even today, we know that we have to be oriented and saturated with the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And so, and, and so it's not really a funny question to me why Peter would throw in so many Old Testament allusions. He's, he's pointing back to divine res, uh, revelation as a basis uh, by which he, he expounds you know, um, various things in this letter. So... Um, so again, he's pointing back to the Old Testament over and over again. But he's really just trying to orient his audience in divine re- uh, revelation. Uh, furthermore, you see, it is pretty uncertain who planted these churches. There is no biblical record of these churches being planted. All you really see is what happens in Acts chapter 2. It is uh, maybe somewhat likely that um, these were... Established at Pentecost, you read some of the names in Acts chapter 2 of, uh, of the people groups present in Acts chapter 2 and at Peter's sermon there. And you see, uh, well, you know what? Let me just look real quick. Acts chapter 2. Uh, so they were amazed and astonished. This is chapter 2, verse 7. Why are not all these people... Uh, all, not all these who are speaking Galileans. 
And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and then Cappadocia, that's in our list there, Pontus and Asia, Mesopotamia, Judea, oop, yeah, in Asia. So uh, verse 10, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and the visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So you get a few of these churches named in Acts chapter 2. Perhaps people got converted there, went back and established churches. We're not really sure. All we do know is in Acts chapter 16, you have it listed there. Paul wanted to go to some of these places. He wanted to go establish churches there. And uh, the Holy Spirit said, uh, sorry, bucko. Nope. We're going to we're going to go somewhere else. So quite interesting. It's, there's, again, there's really no, no even indication in the New Testament that Peter established these churches, although he had some relationship to them. So um, that's sort of their physical status. They, they reside in this part of Turkey, this modern-day Turkey. And what's interesting about how they're listed is that if you were to, to map these out and put on a map a point at each city, you know, or each region, I should say, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what you would see is it makes sort of a loop. And so as Peter is sending, in this case, you'll read at the end, Silvanus as his, his carrier, basically the carrier of this letter to these regions, it seems as if they're listed in verse 1 in the, in the order in which someone would make the trip, in which... You know, Sylvanus would drop off the letters and visit these churches. You know, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, quite interesting. So that's their physical status, but maybe what's more important and more relevant for us is their spiritual one. All right, so look at letter B there. These are Gentile Christians. Verses uh, 1 at the end of verse 1 through verse 2. Let's just read it who are chosen, and then verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. As I was thinking about what I wanted to, how I wanted to map this out, I thought about preaching a, or teaching a whole lesson on just verse 2 and the end of verse 1. Um, because it's so rich with theological sort of uh, ideas regarding salvation. So as you, you've learned their physical status, here's where they are spiritually. At the end of verse 2, or maybe for some of your translations, I think it puts it at the front. They are chosen. All right, they are chosen. Now... People want to make that word mean not chosen sometimes. People get uncomfortable with that word. People automatically think of all the bad things John Calvin did and say, well, it can't be because look at him. No, we're not followers of John Calvin. We're followers of the Bible and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who, who inspired these words. And in the Bible, it says that these people in these areas are chosen all right, well, what's, what's the nature of their calling? What's the, or their, their uh, chosen status, I should say? Well, look, so they're chosen, and then A, according to the foreknowledge of God. By the way, this would be a preaching outline. Uh, I just kind of put it in there. 
who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That means before Adam ever existed and before anyone ever thought of you, earthly speaking, God had you in mind if you're a Christian. Whether you want to believe that or not, whether you can't reconcile that with with how you think free will works in this world and, and all that. Listen, you were chosen, you were in God's mind before the foundation of this world. Before this Bible was ever written, you were in God's mind. Every sin that you would commit, every, every lie you would ever tell, you were still in God's mind as chosen before the foundation of the world. This is the foreknowledge of God. And then B, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's part of your, uh, the way that it's enacted. Uh, this is the means by which you're chosen, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. When we read that word sanctifying, what do we, what, let me just kick it out to you guys. What do we typically think of when we're thinking of sanctification? He said set apart. Yes? Anyone else? If, we have, if I say sanctification, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Separation. Everyone's saying separation. Well, good. That's the good answer. That's where I'm going. Um, um, I think whenever I was in college, let's just say when I was in college or first kind of getting my feet planted theologically, sanctification always meant, okay, there's just this progression of holiness. And that's true. That's probably one of the main ways sanctification or sanctified or sanctification is used in the New Testament. Uh, it's a growth in holiness, a progressive Christ-likeness, okay? But another way that it's used is this idea of being set apart, all right? There's a set-apart aspect to this. And that happens for the Christian on the front end, at conversion, all right? So if you want to think of... Uh, uh, some people say two types of sanctification, some say three, but if there's, there, there's a positional sanctification, what I think this is talking about here, a positional sanctifying, you are, you are no longer a child of the devil, you are now a child of God by the work of the Holy Spirit at conversion. So if you were to die the night after you were converted, you would be in heaven and you're God's child, okay? You've, you're set apart from the rest of the world in that way, okay? You're sanctified. And then... There's the progressive sanctification that I talked about. It's upward. It's, it's, uh, it's towards more Christ-likeness. And if you want to throw a third one in there, it's, uh, at the end, there's, there's a glorification as kind of a way of being sanctified. But we'll, we don't have to go there. But what I think he's talking about here is that at conversion, you were sanctified, set apart. And that was done by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. All right? By the way, not by the will of man, but the will of God, by the will of the Holy Spirit. It's his work that sanctifies you and sets you apart in that way. And then, um, third letter, why, what's, maybe what's the purpose of your chosen status? Well, to obey Jesus Christ, so obedience is there. There's the maybe progressive sanctification, if you're looking for it, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, to be cleansed, all right, to be, to be cleansed by his blood. That's the picture there. So, so listen, this isn't, you know, maybe, maybe their physical status, that first 
letter, letter A, you know, they're in Cappadocia, Bithynia, Pontus, and all those. That's not true of you. But what is true of each one of us in here, if you're a Christian, is their spiritual status. That's what you have in common with the recipients of this letter. All right? You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So that is one way in which we are like the audience of 1 Peter. All right? I've been going fast. Uh, I know often, I'm, Roger's not in here, so I don't assume I'm going to get a ton of questions, but if you have anything you want to say, just butt in, okay? All right. No questions. I must be doing well. All right? Um, I'm, I'm joking. Uh, thirdly, so you know, the, you know the author, you know the audience. Let's look at main themes. Here are the main things you're going to find. Not, not the only things you're going to find in First Peter, but maybe the main ideas that run throughout the vein of uh, Peter's thought in his epistle. Um, first, present trials. Present trials. Could I have someone read chapter 1, <laughs> verses 6 and 7? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Uh, what about chapter 3, verse 14? Anybody get that? suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear for what they fear. Do not be frightened. Okay, great. What about chapter 4, verse 12? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Yep. Uh, you know, I think there could probably be more verses in here listed, but I just gave you three for simplicity's sake. Uh, one of the main things when you think about First Peter to think about is he's writing to a group of Christians who are facing the, uh, facing the I guess, immediate threat of, of trials and, and probably persecution for their faith. Okay? Um, the, at, at the time of the writing of this letter... You know, there's debate on whether, when this was written. Some say it's as early as 62 B.C. all the way to 69 B.C. or so. That's right in the, in the range there where you have, like, Emperor Nero come into power, all right? Or when he's starting to actually enforce persecution. He's already in power, actually, in some sense. But in 64 A.D., um, possibly right after this was written, most scholars, I would say, think this was 63 A.D., but 64 AD um, is when there was a great Roman fire, the great fire in Rome, I should say. And Nero took the uh, opportunity presented there to blame that on Christians, if you have ever heard that. Um, it's a big fire in Rome. He blamed it on Christians. And as a result of that, 
There, were, there was a lot of persecution towards Christians and anti-Christian sort of sentiment. And as a result of that tradition holds that Peter and, and, uh, and uh, I believe it was Peter and Paul were both, um, were both killed as a result of that persecution. And really, if you were to say, uh, okay, this was written in 63 AD, 62 AD, I said BC earlier, didn't I? I'm sorry. AD. I saw you smiling about something and I thought, oh, what did I say? That's what I said. It just clicked. <laughs> AD. After death. Or Adonai Domini. Whatever it is. Um, all right. Um, or was it? 62 AD. Perhaps right before this letter was written, the Apostle James was, was, was killed according to tradition. Okay? So... Persecution was, was right at their doorstep if it hadn't already showed up in their house, okay? They, they are facing persecution and staring at it right down, um, uh, you know, right in the face. So that's, that is a, um, a major theme throughout this book. And by the way, we may be in the same boat. I think we've been feeling it coming in America for you know, the past decade or so, it's kind of heating up, isn't it? Um, another way in which you might relate to the audience here. Um, there are Christians and they're looking at potential suffering. We're Christians and we're looking at potential suffering for our faith, specifically because we're Christians, okay? So that can be uh, another point in which we can relate to them. And then B, uh, you have present trials. B, future hope. One thing that is often... Uh, repeated throughout the book of 1 Peter is this idea that we have a hope that we're looking forward to in the future. Um, someone, can you read for me verse 3 of chapter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Great. What about verse 13? Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Great. And uh, the well-known verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Anybody have that? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Great. Yeah, so you see this repeated theme of future hope. There's a hope stored up for you in heaven. It's true of all of us if we're in Christ. Um, let us see there. I'm just going to read through some of this. Let's speed it up a little bit. Um, holy conduct is emphasized. You see that over and over in this epistle. In fact, I would say that Part of the main purpose of the main purpose of this book is to teach people how to be holy within their suffering and holy within their trials. Um, just a few verses here. Uh, I can read chapter one, verses fourteen through sixteen. You have Peter saying, uh, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also." In all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. All right, verse 11 of chapter 2, 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. So, over and over in the book, conduct is, is mentioned. Um, how can you live like a Christian in the midst of being persecuted for being one? And then the glorious gospel is emphasized in a lot of chapter 1. Uh, we'll, we'll look at this next week, but verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Listen to the salvific language here. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verses 10 through 12. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Isn't that amazing? The angels, they, they, they're just entranced and amazed by the salvation that has come to us, the gospel that has come to us. So those are just a few of the main themes. Maybe you could add more. Maybe you could subtract one, but I think those are maybe uh, some of the most predominant things you're going to see in First Peter. Let's look quickly at the main purpose of this letter. I wrote three different, uh, say, purposes for First Peter. First one coming from the horse's mouth, Peter himself. He says in First Peter 5.12, this is really helpful, by the way, when authors do this. John does this a lot in his writings. Here's why I wrote these things to you. You see that in First John, you see it in John, the gospel as well. But First Peter, Peter does a similar thing. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother... For so I regard him. I have written to you briefly. Doing what? Well, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So in a general sense, Peter's saying, I want you to, to believe that this is the true grace of God. It has come to you and stand firm in what you've been taught and what I'm teaching you. No matter what's happening externally in terms of persecution or opposition or whatever it may be. Okay, stand firm. That's his charge. And then I, uh, I don't know, did I attach my name to the, to the second one? Does it say Aaron at the end of that? <laughs> this is my crack at it, okay? Really succinct sort of uh, purpose statement. I put the main purpose, and this is just after reading this uh, epistle a few times and thinking about it. The main purpose of 1 Peter is to encourage those who were experiencing persecution to keep their eyes on heaven and to keep their conduct holy. All right? To keep their eyes on heaven and to keep their conduct holy. And then uh, the last definition there I have is of Thomas Schreiner. You may or may not have heard of him. He's a theologian out of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's got a lot of helpful things to say about First Peter and his commentary. We don't line up specifically in every point of doctrine with him, but he's... He's, uh, you know, we're going to spend in heaven, uh, eternity in heaven with him. He's got a lot of good things to say about this letter. But he says his, uh, 
his way of thinking about the purpose of the letter is this. He says, the purpose of the letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. They are encouraged to persevere, knowing that a great reward will be theirs on the day of salvation. Such perseverance is exhibited by living a godly life, living as good citizens, model slaves, gentle wives, and understanding husbands. When believers live in such a way, they indicate that they are placing their hope in God rather than the joys and comforts of this world. All right. So that is my introduction to 1 Peter. I don't know if that was a lot or if you knew a lot of that and it wasn't that big of a deal. But here's my encouragement. Um, You're going to get, if I'm doing my job, you're going to get a lot out of 1 Peter if you remain consistent to be here, engaged in this, you got your head in the game, um, perhaps read 1 Peter a few times through. It doesn't take very long. Um, in fact, I think that's what I want to do now. If you look at the end of 1 Thessalonians, if you look at the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul exhorts them to have this letter read in its entirety to the people there. Same thing, I believe, at the end of Colossians. It says, have this letter read. That was the practice uh, of, of those who uh, would send letters. Like, hey, have this read to the group in its entirety. And I think that's going to be helpful if we, if we do that. I think it's going to take about 15 minutes, perfect timing. Um, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to listen. All right, I'm going to read this. I want you to imagine that you're in this congregation and you're facing these trials. And you're, and you're trying to live the best you can. You, you need to focus on your conduct. And you need reminded of the gospel. All right? So I'm going to read this letter from front to back. Chapter 1 through chapter 5. And uh, I just want you to hear it in its entirety. Because listen, if, you were, if I were to write you a two or three page letter and send it to you in the mail and you opened it, you wouldn't crack it open and read a couple lines and be like, all right, I think that's enough for today. You would read the whole thing, wouldn't you? All right, so let's, let's read the whole thing. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which has, uh, was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice, and all deceit, and all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay a stone Uh, lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to the governor as is sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, uh, an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Chapter three, verse one. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, which is which, uh, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without becoming frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what is good? <clears throat> But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation <clears throat> and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made 
proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable uh, idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for the purpose, uh, excuse me, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers, uh, suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort elders among you as your fellow elder and witnesses, or witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with, selves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, 
Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, be, to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. All right. Did your Bible reading for today? All right, let me pray for us, and we'll continue on in First Peter next week. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that your word blesses us over the next handful of months as we look at First Peter. Pray that it would encourage our faith, help us, that it would help us to stand fast in the midst of trials and persecutions and opposition, all of that. Strengthen our faith by your word. May your Holy Spirit work in our presence as we, as we look at your, as, uh, your servant Peter's letter. We love you and we thank you for the gospel, which is so prominent in this epistle. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.